Nice shirt, Trey. We planned, don't we look good? We were sending selfies to each other all morning, like, what about this one? What about this one? And so I hope you like it. Natasha and Greg, love you so much. Thank you for sharing. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. We are continuing our Psalm series, and we are not going in order, so you won't guess which one we're doing next. It is Psalm 3. Oh, oh no. I think that this speaker just went out. So middle of the room, that's what happened during worship, and you might not be able to hear me as well as normal. So, okay. All right, well. Um, we've got a, a bunch of people right now in Waco, Texas. We've got like uh, most of our staff is there and a couple other people at World Mandate. It's an annual missions conference that Antioch has been doing for 30 years. And now it happens in like 12 different places throughout the country, different Antioch churches. And we sent a handful of people that God's been stirring recently. And just they've been telling us as pastors and elders, like, God, God's doing something in me. And so we said, we believe that. We hear that. We don't know exactly what he's saying either. Let's send you to World Mandate and believe you're going to hear God and take your next step. So excited for them to get back. And uh, we've got Kingdom Conference coming up here in a few weeks. Really excited for all of that. And we are doing a corporate fast leading up to Kingdom Conference. That was more amens than I anticipated. We're going we're gonna to do, do a fast for 24 hours, and I want you to do it. Yes. I want you to do it. The, the whole point of Kingdom Conference is going along with the word that God's been speaking to us this year about bring me another jar. Create empty space in your life and let the Lord fill it. That's what Kingdom Conference is all about, and we want to be preparing our hearts and our minds and our souls and our whole lives to hear from God over Kingdom Conference, to meet with Him in a powerful way that changes every one of us and us together for the rest of our lives. If we're not going for that, why do Kingdom Conference? So we want to prepare our hearts for that. So I want to invite you into a 24-hour fast, and I want to invite you to fast from food for those 24 hours. We're going to be doing a corporate prayer and worship time here at church. So we're doing it lunch to lunch, lunch Wednesday to lunch Thursday, 12 to 1, both days. We'll have times for you to pray and worship with other people who are fasting. So one, it'll help you make sure you're praying and not just not eating, because just not eating is really lame. So it'll help you make sure you're praying and you'll get to be with other people who are doing it, which is awesome. So lunch to lunch, and then we're going to give you a resource for Wednesday night to help you pray before bed when you'd usually turn on a movie and have a snack. Like, well, here, pray this and then go to bed early, praise God, and that'll be a great night. So I really want to invite you to do it. Obviously, I, you know, some of you can't and all that sort of thing, but lean into this. If you've never fasted before, just, just do it. It's awesome. Trust us. Come into this spiritual discipline, meet with the Lord, and let's pray together. Amen. Okay, Psalm 3. Are you there? Great. We're going to read it in just a second. We're continuing our Psalms series. I hope you've been enjoying it. I know I have been. This is week three. We are talking through five categories of the Psalms. The first week we talked about the category of wisdom to read, and we talked through Psalm 1 last week. We talked about regal prophecies, and we talked through Psalm 2, and was last week a little intense for anybody else? Can we just be honest that there's no pressure relief valve in all of Psalm 2? It's just intensity all the way, which I love. (laughs) Right up my alley. I'm like, 
Why let the air out? Let's just put the pressure up, you know? But it's just just good to recognize it was what it was. It was pretty intense, and it's good to know. That's kind of how the Bible is sometimes. Psalm 3, this morning, we're doing our third category, which is lament. And it sounds like it's just going to be more of last week, but it's actually going to make you feel a whole lot better. So we'll just say that on the front end. I'm thankful, thankful for that. So we're talking about the category of Psalms this morning of laments. And if you break up the Psalms into the five categories that we're doing, because you don't have to, but it's, it's one of the ways you can break these up. Lament is the category of Psalms that contains the most amount of Psalms. So that's not the same as saying most Psalms are laments. But as far as the five goes, this is the category with the most amount of Psalms in it. This, this idea of lamenting. These are Psalms where you get a lot of things like, Oh God! Oh Lord, help, protect me. Enemies are everywhere. Rise up for me, fight for me, protect me. I'm scared. Some of the deepest and darkest things happen in the pages of the Psalms in the laments. There's death, there's suffering, there's cries for help. There's fear and anger and disappointment and depression and discouragement. But the reason that this is actually encouraging is because you learn in these poems that you're allowed to go through those things. And the reason that that is encouraging is because you do go through these things. You're allowed to lament. You're allowed and encouraged to be honest about what's really going on, to not sugarcoat what you really think and what you're really feeling and what's really happening. You're encouraged that you're not crazy for struggling in the various ways that you struggle. God is not scared away by your situation or your honesty about your situation. And that is encouraging. I told you that each week we're going to talk about sort of a literary tool that is used in the Psalms to help us understand and appreciate more of what's going on this week. I'm going to call it a tool, even though it sort of isn't, but we're going to roll with it anyways. We're going to talk about uh, something you've never heard before called Selah. (laughs) Psalm 3 is our introduction uh, to Selah as far as the chronological Psalms go. And as you know, we do this every week, this practice, and, and this is where our Selah time comes from. Not just Psalm 3, but the idea of Selah in the Psalms. Selah is, is not an English word, and it's, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word because it's one of those Hebrew words that you can't exactly translate into an English word. So they just wrote the English version of what the Hebrew word sounds like and said, Selah. It means this, it's, it's this idea, it captures a lot more than just a definition. It's, it's like, stop, just stop. And the reason it can be used as this literary tool is because the the authors of the Psalms would insert Selah into these moments to make sure that you would stop while you were reading it. Stop while you're listening to it. Stop while you're saying it. Because like we've said, so many of these Psalms are... Uh, or corporate experiences, or corporate confessions. And then people, obviously, we read them in silence by ourselves. We listen to them in church out loud. And Selah is this idea that no matter what the setting is, no matter what's going on, stop for a second and think about what you just read. Stop and think about what you just heard. Don't just move on and breeze past it 
Part of what's happening here is you've got to stop and listen, stop and think, stop and let it, let it marinate on the inside before you just microwave yourself through this idea. Stop for a second. And we're going to see Selah in Psalm 3 this morning. But right before we read Psalm 3, I want to talk about uh, the kind of the subscription, or I don't know what the word is, inscription, the scription that happens right under the, the title. Mine in the ESV says, save me, oh my God. So if you've ever had that thought, this psalm's for you. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So there's a little bit of context for you, and uh, not to be confusing, but sometimes these, these I wish I should, have looked, I should have nailed down that word a little better. We'll call them subtitles, contexts, settings. Uh, these settings are like, it totally, absolutely could have definitely meant David actually wrote this when he was on the run from Absalom, his son, but some scholars have other theories about it, which I don't really know why, because it seems to say it right there, but we're going to roll with it. And whether, either way, the point is that the context is actually really, really powerful here. That this is a prayer that applies to these situations. Because regardless of constructing the exact setting of who wrote this and when they wrote it, what we do know is that this was a real prayer written by a real person going through real things. It was his prayer that he prayed to help him meet with God. In what he was going through. And we know that whoever it was, whatever the exact details were, we know that God inspired that person in that moment to pray this prayer, not just to help that person connect with God, but to help you and me. Because whether or not we go through the exact situation that was going on exactly when this psalm was written, the Holy Spirit inspired this person to pray in his situation, to help you learn how to pray in your situation, to help you meet with God in whatever your exact situation is. Whenever you don't know what to write, whenever you don't know what to pray, whenever you don't know what to say, God has gone before you and taught you to pray and is saying, make this your prayer. Make this your prayer. When like David, because this really did happen, David really did run from Absalom, his son. And you really do go through things where you really do need to learn how to pray. And you really do need help. And you really do need God to help you connect with him in the moment. So David's running from his son Absalom. That definitely did happen. And I'm just going to give you the details of that. One, because it's interesting Bible information. And two, it's kind of mind-blowing and crazy. And you're like, wow, people have been messed up for a long time. It's not just us. And three, you're going to realize probably like, well, okay, I'm at least I'm not going through that. <laughs> so David's running from his son Absalom. So what happened was Absalom is David's son. David has another son, Amnon. Amnon and Absalom are half-brothers. Amnon, nope. Absalom has a sister that Amnon decides to fall in love with, and he wants to get with her. And he's freaking out about it. I have to do, I got to be with this woman. And his stupid friend comes along and goes, pretend to be sick. She'll come take care of you and all this sort of stuff. So he, he creates this ridiculous plot and violates his half-sister. Absalom hears about it, gets really mad. 
So it's kind of like, so far, go Absalom. <laughs> so David hears about it and basically doesn't do anything. And so time goes on and Absalom orchestrates this event to get Amnon alone in a field with some of Absalom's boys. And he's like, hey, when Amnon's there, kill him and don't worry about it. I told you to, so it's fine. And they're like, yes, sir. And so Absalom has Amnon killed. It's kind of like, well, you know, probably deserved it. David hears about it. And he's like, oh my gosh, my sons are dead. And they're like, no, just one of them's dead. And he's like, okay, well, that's good. They didn't lose both of them. And then years go on and Absalom goes on the run. And then Absalom orchestrates this other weird thing to where David welcomes him back into town, essentially. And basically, Absalom then comes a few years after that and presents himself to David, even though David said, you can come back to town, but I don't want to ever see you again. Absalom orchestrates it to where he sees David. And instead of giving judgment to Absalom and saying, you know, that, that justice wasn't for you to execute, you know, it wasn't right for you to go about that the way you go about it. David kissed him instead and welcomed him. And Absalom realizes, dad won't do anything to me. And so Absalom takes that as final green light. And he starts going to the city gate and doing all these things behind David's back to win the heart of the people. And they all start to love him. And so then he takes 50 chariots and all these other people and he goes to this other town and they do this big festival where Absalom installs himself as the king and took all of David's people with him. And all of a sudden David hears about it and realizes all of a sudden behind my back, this son of mine who I welcomed home is now trying to take the kingdom from me and he's out to kill me. Drama. <laughs> so that's what's going on. That's what's really happening when this psalm gets written. So let's stand to read it. Psalm 3. There's some Selahs there, but I did all of that as a, a not quiet Selah. So like I said last week, get the lens on before we read it. It's not just a poem. It's just not just something nice in the Bible. There's, there's some real stuff going on here. And it puts the meat on the bones. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 3. We thank you for the laments. We thank you, God, that you are teaching us right now to pray. You are teaching us who you are. You are teaching us how to follow you, that you're not scared of the things that we're going through. I pray that our hearts and our minds and our souls would be open to you right now, Holy Spirit. 
I'm praying, God, that we would see you and that we would know you. We would be shaped more into your image by the power of your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here and alive and active in your word. And we invite you, come and speak to us, Holy Spirit. Move us forward. Let us see you, the God of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So like we've been doing, we're just going to walk through this psalm one little bit at a time, starting in verse 1. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. As we've already explained, this is not an exaggeration. This is not a complaint. This is real. This isn't just like somebody got his Starbucks order wrong and he feels bad about it and like some things didn't totally go his way. It's true. Many are his foes. Many are rising against him. We see through Psalm 3 this journey of hope. The thing about a journey of hope is that it usually starts in hopelessness. But it's important to understand that we are on a journey of hope, not a journey of hopelessness. A journey of hopelessness ends in hopelessness. A journey of hope starts in hopelessness, which means that what is true in God's world is that if you're hopeless, you're not at the end of the road, you're at the start of the road. So David is in his hopeless situation. Many are my foes, many are rising against me. And yet somehow in that, it is in that hopeless confession that God starts to birth faith in this hopeless person by the Holy Spirit because he starts with a personal address to God. It's, the confession of his hopelessness is actually a confession that God is near in the suffering. It's this personal address. He doesn't even know it, but he's confessing. God, you're so far away and everything's going, going wrong, but you're still here even though I'm not saying it. Your name is the name that means you are still here. The psalmist starts out with his cry in pain and still yet somehow recognizes the presence of God. God, this is the situation I'm in. This is it. Many are my foes and many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, people everywhere are looking at me and they're telling me there's no salvation for me in God. That's what it feels like, and that's really what is actually happening. He's not just being dramatic. He's actually in the middle of a lot of real drama. This is really happening. And this is interesting coming off of last week. Remember how Psalm 2, we talked about how that was probably something that, that, that did set the tone for what, how the people were supposed to look at the king? This, this, the king is, is, is the, the, the delegated son of God for us to lead us and stand against our enemies. That's how Israel was supposed to look at the king. And now those people who were supposed to look at him in light of Psalm 2 are now shouting at him, not even God can save you. You're not God's anointed. He hasn't begotten you and put you on the throne of his people. You're in big trouble, and God won't save you. God can't save you. You're going to die, and no one of us is going to do anything about, you, about it. None of us are going to help you, and God's not going to help you. How the tables turn. This is hopelessness. Which means you're allowed to start your prayers in hopelessness. 
you're actually allowed to be hopeless. You're just encouraged to bring that hopelessness to God. Don't come to God and pretend you're not hopeless. Bring it. Do both. Sometimes we think we either have to pick the hopelessness and God's not there, or we've got to go to God and pretend the hopelessness isn't there. No, the hopelessness is there. God is there too. Live in the truth. And bring your hopelessness to God is, is different than saying, don't be hopeless. This can play out in so many different ways. You may not go through what David went through, but God in Psalm 3 is teaching you to pray. He is teaching you how to bring your hopeless soul to him. There can be external things against you. There might be circumstances and people and challenges. Many times there's internal things coming against you. There's depression. There's temptation. Isn't this how temptation makes you feel? It's so strong, so many feelings, so many emotions, so many desires, so many habits that are fighting against righteousness that you're trying to live in. How could God ever take all this away? Will he ever take all this away? Temptation is surrounding me. The love of money, it feels unconquerable in my life. Lust feels unconquerable. The sexual confusion feels unconquerable. The selfishness, the anger, the rage, it's, it's all around me. I, I can never beat this thing. And, and this, this lament, this, this, not just the words, the lament, but this whole lament that's happening, this confession of like, I can't win here. This ends badly. This is the end of me. Everyone's against me. I don't see a way out. That lament is not just for the Psalms. We see the same lament in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. I think I forgot to give this to you guys, so can you buckle up and it's not on the screen? <laughs> Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Hopelessness. External and internal. What does, what does hopelessness mean? Well, I want to tell you what it doesn't mean. When you're hopeless, it doesn't mean you're weird doesn't mean you're the weird one. It actually means you're normal in a lot of ways. It's normal for life to be challenging. It's normal to get to points where you're overwhelmed. It's normal to be facing something that is bigger than you that you don't know how to fight. Hopelessness doesn't mean you're the one person who can't figure everything out. Hopelessness means you are a person who, like everyone else, can't figure everything out. So what does being hopeless mean? It means you've looked at life and you have found it to be challenging. It means that you've looked at yourself 
And you have found yourself lacking in ability to overcome those challenges. And that's what we see in verses 1 and 2. Selah. Selah tells us that there is a need in hopelessness to actually stop and think for a second. There, there, there is a pause at the honest part of the prayer. Psalm 3 teaches us. Psalm 3 teaches us that there's a pause at the clear picture of how bad things, of how bad things really are. There's a pause in the moment where you're the most honest. It means that God's not trying to rush you through the part where you're honest about the hard things. God's telling you, stop. It's true really is that bad. It really does feel like that. Stop. There's something that God deems necessary in the moment of hopelessness to stop you and let you know he hears you and he sees you. He doesn't have a weak stomach that can't handle the details of reality. You are allowed to be honest You are encouraged to be honest. He knows. He knows. He even knows the parts of what it is that you're going through that might actually be your fault. Think about David here. There's some things he should have straightened out a while ago. He shouldn't be here. Part of this is his fault. God knows. He knows. And he wants you to know he knows. And he wants you to know that you can talk to him about it. Because he's not nervous about where this goes. It's part of him preparing your heart, this pause. He's, he's, he's preparing you to know him more and know him deeper. He's saying, stop and see this for what it really is. Don't rush through the clear picture of what's really going on here. Because he knows that when we really understand sin for what it really is, grace is that much more incredible. When we understand our sin for what it really is, forgiveness is that much more beautiful. When we're honest about the pain, his presence becomes that much more precious. The healing is that much more miraculous. The comfort is that much more substantial. You can say la at the hard part. Not, oh God, everybody's around me and things are going bad and everyone's telling me that there's no salvation in God. But I know you want me to get to the part where I just start confessing that there is salvation in God and everything's going to be okay. So I'm going to pretend that I'm there right now. I know you're pretending. So just be honest. Just be honest. Everything is terrible. Everything's against me. I'm terrified, and I'm in desperate need of God. And when you say at the hard part, you also take time to see what's not working. The psalmist needs to stop and be honest about his circumstances around him and about the people around him 
Because when he stops and he's honest about the circumstances he's in and the people that are around him, he's going to realize first, wow, this is honestly not good. And I'm allowed to be honest about that. But second, if I'm going to get out of this, it's probably not going to be the circumstances that get me out of it or the people around me right now who are going to get me out of it. In the same law of hopelessness, be honest about where you are and be honest about what's not going to get you out of the situation that you're in. Even that is the mercy of God. Romans 7 says, this is the situation I'm in and I'm realizing my flesh isn't going to get me out of it. My desires aren't going to get me out of it. My effort, my ability, my mind, my discipline, these things can't save me. None of them are working. And it's what leads to Romans 8. It leads, the Selah of Romans 7 leads to the revelation of Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. All the things that are disappointing me right now, they're going to keep disappointing me. I need something different. And that's what happens in Psalm 3, verse 3. They're saying there's no salvation for him and God. But you, verse 3, but you, but you, not this is all going wrong, but I will be strong. But I know this is what it feels like, but, but things aren't really that bad. This, this isn't that bad. Everything's fine. Everything's going to be fine. I know, I know, I know. It just feels that way. Not, but I'll, I'll stay positive and I'll figure this out. Not, but I realize my enemies are actually my friends, so I'll just join them. Which is funny. But the not funny version of that is, but I realize my temptations really just my deepest, truest self. No, no. But you, oh Lord are a shield about me. But you, O oh Lord, are my glory. But you, O oh Lord, are the lifter of my head. David cries out to the Lord and he sees something practical. He sees protection. I'm facing enemies all around me and you are a shield all around me. This is why Psalm 2, in all of its intensity, is a deep revelation of the love and the goodness of God. It ends, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who face hard battles. Blessed are those who come to the end of themselves, and instead of trusting in themselves, they trust in who God is. They draw near to him. They surrender to him. They make him their confession. Blessed is the man who finds the Lord as a shield about him. He sees something powerful. But you, O Lord, are my glory. You are my source. You are my strength. You are my substance. You are my honor. I'm not looking to myself for myself. I am looking to you. And I'm looking to you, not just for me, but I'm looking to you for you. You are my shield and protection in all of this. And you, O oh Lord, are my glory, my strength in all of this. And the psalmist sees something personal. You, O oh Lord, are the lifter of my head. You are the wind in my sails. You are the breath when I feel suffocated. 
You are the clarity when the fog is thick. You, O Lord. You, but you, O Lord, are the one who lifts me. The hopelessness is real, but you, O Lord. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. When enemies use their voices to speak against you and speak against your God, use your voice to cry to the Lord. He is the king set on Zion, his holy hill. He is above the raging nations. He is above the plotting people. He is your shield when you are surrounded. He is your glory when you are weak. He is the lifter of your head. And if you will cry to him, he will answer you. Selah. You've stopped to be honest about your troubles. Now stop and be honest about how real and present God is in those troubles. Think about the shield about you. Think about his glory. Let him lift your head. Selah. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. This idea of sleeping is more commentary on God's protection. Sleeping is a demonstration of trust and calm. And it's also, let's be honest, it's a way we escape stuff sometimes. Yes. You ever been so overwhelmed you just go to sleep? Yes. You ever been so tired you can't even pray anymore you just go to sleep? Yes. The Lord sustains you in your weaknesses. In the midst of everything going on, he has remembered, the psalmist has remembered who God is, and he is continuing to remember God's faithfulness. Hopelessness can make your vision so narrow. It can make your memory so short. But praise God for his sustaining grace and presence. He woke me up this morning. He woke me up this morning. In fact, every time I sleep, he always wakes me up. I've woken up a lot of times in my life. I keep waking up. I keep going to sleep. Scared, overwhelmed, tired, and weak, and he keeps waking me up. No matter what's going on, he's always sustained me, and he's sustaining me right now. When you consider this as potentially written by David while he was running for Absalom, it gets the feel like he wrote this sentence after he woke up from a nap he didn't plan on waking up from. It's like the last time he went to sleep, he just figured this is probably the last time. But my God, you woke me up. Here we are again. Hopelessness tells you you're never going to get through this. But don't forget that God has always sustained you. He has always been faithful. And then, out of this once hopeless man, a declaration of faith starts to emerge. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. Who have set themselves against me. Now you, he's taking courage now. There's real courage. It, it smells like faith. He isn't saying now everything's fine because all the bad thoughts are gone. I remembered he woke me up from my nap so everything's fine. No, no, no. Many thousands of people have set themselves against me all around. But so has God set himself around me. So has God set himself to be my refuge. So has God been faithful in the past, and so will God be faithful again. I can be afraid. I should be afraid, but I won't be afraid. I will 
Hold on to the promises of God. I will not be afraid. Hopelessness tries to tell you you don't have a will in the matter. You will be desperate whether you like it or not. You will be depressed whether you like it or not. You will be stuck whether you like it or not. But you do have a will in the matter. You do have a choice of whether you sink or not, whether you fail or not. You do have a will in the matter. Let your will be look at God and remember God. Don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord your God. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. What a prayer. No, I remember my God, and now that I've been thinking about my God, I remember he's the God who rages against peoples who rage against him, who's bigger and stronger than nations that plot against him. In fact, he's the God who slaps my enemies in the cheek so hard he cracks their teeth. You ever heard somebody pray like that? (laughs) He's not asking God to do it. He's remembering that this is who God is. This is who God is. Desperation is finding confidence. Arise, O Lord, and do what you do. And what you do is you save me. You save me because you go against your enemies. See, when you're walking in the righteousness of Christ, you get the confidence that whatever or whoever messes with you messes with God. And Psalm 2 showed us what God thinks about that when someone messes with his anointed. It's comforting. It's comforting that this is who God is. We were talking about this in Life Group this last week. We're saying, you know, honestly, if somebody's going to be a refuge, it means they've got to have way bigger guns than the bad guys. It's comforting that, oh, my God punches harder than the bad guys. I'm going to run and hide behind him because <laughs> he's safe. He didn't have a bigger fist, he wouldn't be safe. It'd just be a hug. <laughs> Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not up to my enemies to say there is no salvation or help for me. Salvation isn't theirs to give, so it's not theirs to keep. Amen. I will trust in the Lord and take refuge in him. I won't be taken because they told me I would be taken. I won't be saved Because I'm strong, I will be saved because salvation belongs to the Lord and I belong to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And that's me. I'm yours. Let your blessing be on me, God. That is me. I want your blessing. Selah. That's me. That's my God. And I am his. As we wrap up here, I want to just close by underscoring the point. These are not just complaints. Laments are not complaints that we need to skip over. They are the exploration of deep, horrible feelings and learning how to not let those things envelop you, how to feel the feelings of trouble but not let them overtake you, how to turn your attention to what is real and also to who is more real, the God of my salvation. I told you at the beginning of this message that you learn in these poems that you're allowed to lament. You're encouraged to be honest. You're not crazy for struggling in the various ways that you struggle. That God isn't scared away by you being honest. But the craziest thing that you learn in these laments 
isn't that God is just okay with you and you're struggling. It's that God is really, really with you in your struggles. He is with you in the pain. He is with you and he's teaching you to pray. He's teaching you who he is. He's teaching you how to know him. He isn't just the good shepherd who leads you by still waters and green pastures. He is also the good shepherd who is present in and leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. One of the commentaries that I've been reading says this about Psalm 3. The psalm is written out of a situation in which all earthly reasons for trust have dissolved which leads to the psalmist to build his hope on an unearthly foundation, the fidelity of God. As the old hymn has it, all other ground is sinking sand. I want you to stand as we close our time together. We've just got a few minutes. I'll invite our prayer team. Come on up. Come get prayer for whatever you need. Come have somebody pray with you for whatever you need somebody to pray with you with. About. I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, we love you and we thank you We thank you that you are our shield, you are our glory, and you are the lifter of our heads. We thank you that you are present with us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come right now, you would strengthen us. Lord, we pray that you would be a shield about us in every way that it's needed. We pray, God, that you would be the glory of every person in this room. And we pray that you would be the lifter of our heads. Teach us who you are. Teach us how to come to you. We love you. In Jesus' name.